Now we go into Iraq in 2003 and break the stranglehold that's I'm not defending Saddam mm -hmm. Hussein he was a bad actor but we broke that stranglehold and now all of these people who have no national no natural no clan ties no affinities they're breaking off into they've they've shattered into groups of people that really don't like each other very much that's Jonathan White an internationally recognized terrorism and criminal justice expert and the executive director of the Homeland Defense Initiative at Grand Valley State University. Today we hear from Dr. White about recent terrorist attacks in Nice and Orlando, and we hear as well about what he thinks most Americans don't understand about the nature of modern terrorism. This episode of a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University commemorates September the 11th, 2001. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In the wake of recent tragedies in Paris, Orlando, and Nice, politicians and policymakers have been struggling to come up with and agree upon a meaningful response to modern terrorism. Jonathan White, our guest today, has studied this topic for quite some time. After 9-11, he was tapped by the federal government to direct the state and local anti-terrorism training program. He's conducted counterterrorism training across the globe and is a recognized expert on the relationship between terrorism and religious extremism, given his important studies of white supremacist groups in America, which we'll hear a bit about. In this conversation, Dr. White talks about American foreign policy and the problem of terror, and whether Trump or Clinton's respective policy stances on the problem are viable. He also enters the debate about whether religious extremism has anything to do with Islam, or for that matter, with Christianity. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Dr. White, Dr. John, uh, thanks very much for talking with me today, coming on the podcast. Um, I, I wrote you initially, right after the attack in Nice on Bastille Day, when a Tunisian resident of France drove a cargo truck into a crowd, killing about 85 and injuring 307. One thing that really disturbed me, and I think disturbed a lot of people about this attack in particular, was that by the time it happened, such attacks seemed normal or common. They seem to happen so frequently now, uh, but few, if any, people seem to offer reasonable plans for response. The collective confusion and despair following these events in, in rapid succession reminded me of something I've heard you say before, uh, and that I know you wrote in the Huffington Post a couple years ago, quote, many Americans have not yet come to grips with the meaning and function of terrorism in the modern world. What, what don't Americans get, in your view, about the sort of terrorism we're seeing today? Well, number one, terrorism isn't out of the norm. It's a way uh, in a modern age that a non-nation state or just a small group of people can actually strike at, at state actors, as a nation state. What's needed for terrorism, and you've probably heard me say this at other times, are three essential things and it comes together in modernity. You have to have a group or an aggrieved person, someone who is just really upset. They have to have the ability to travel and they have to have access to technology that can kill a lot of people. If you have those three things, you have terrorism. Terrorists operate outside the normal laws of combat, but 
Well, and that's just the nature of things. All terrorists uh, commit criminal acts. Very few criminals are terrorists. In fact, mm -hmm. less. We're talking about a significant, uh, significantly less than one percent of criminals are terrorists. But a terrorist has to commit criminal acts uh, in order to engage in terrorism. It's a low-level way of fighting, and it requires a special set of skills for fighting it. You emphasize technology and the ability to to be mobile and to move quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, does that make terrorism then a uniquely modern, you know, form of of fighting? Well. Relatively, uh, as it is today, because of modernity, yeah, it is, a, it is something rather new. But there have been ter terrorist attacks throughout the past. The, the Assassin's Call, for example, mm -hmm. in, uh, during the Crusades, they used terrorist tactics, and suicide stabbing. I mean, guys who would go in uh, and uh, commit the act knowing that they were going to die. We're recording this interview on August 17th, 2016, and Donald Trump has recently said once again that he would ban, well, he, he said once again that he would ban all Muslims. I think this time he said all people from Middle Eastern countries from entering the U.S. if he were president. The first time he said anything like that, he wasn't the Republican nominee, but in fact, those and other similar statements um, have actually given him a bit more political power with, with a lot of voters on the far right rather than less. What do you, as a person who studied and who has written about terrorism, what do you make of this? Is Trumpism or is tr Trump's rhetoric in American politics in any way proof of the effects, cultural effects of terrorism on a population that's sort of being terrorized? Uh, a statement like that is, um, is not normal for a variety of reasons. First of all, it won't work. Uh, there's no way to figure out if you're banning Muslims or not. Yeah, sure. And you have to ask someone, and I've got a terrorist, whoa, no, not yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it wouldn't be smart just <laughs> yeah. to admit it. I'm know, a Jehovah's okay. Witness. Yeah. Uh, no, the second thing is it's a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, the third, it, those statements, and the, the Democrats have a similar number of statements, uh, that they don't understand the complexity and nature of modern terrorism. They don't understand the intelligence needs. For example, I was consulting with the federal government quite a bit uh, during uh, George uh, W. Bush's administration and Barack Obama's administration. Both of them had anti-terrorist ideology. Uh, under President Bush, uh, we were always engaged in a war on terrorism. Look at the Constitution. You can't declare war on a concept. Uh, and if you use the war metaphor, you miss the point that the lead security force in counterterrorism is almost always law enforcement. Military forces are used when it's not practical to use law enforcement agencies. Uh, with uh, President Obama, when giving a briefing, we were not allowed to use the term a domestic terrorist. All our slides had to be uh, censored. Uh, and, in fact, they would throw some of my PowerPoint slides out because, oh, this depicts these people in a particular, whatever people it happened to be, in a particular light, and we don't, we don't want to show you it. You said domestic terrorists. Uh -huh. So what, what was the context of this? What were you presenting about? Oh, I was giving uh, uh, briefings mm -hmm. to state, local, and federal police officers around the country. And I belonged to a group that did uh, 
we looked at pre-incident indicators and told investigators what to look for when they were trying to prevent terrorism. And we were not allowed to use the term domestic terrorist. Well, that's what they told me. I recall uh, running into a senior FBI agent in San Francisco and he was going through my presentation and he said, you can't say domestic terrorist. And I pointed out what tenured full professor meant and said domestic terrorist. Right. Uh, he was not too happy with me. So, so what, uh, can you guess at why they didn't like that particular term? It's ideology. Uh, it's all driven by a particular set of beliefs. Sam Walker in his book Sense and Nonsense About Crime says there's conservative crime control theology mm -hmm. and liberal crime control theology. And why he uses the term theology is because it's all over the board. It's, it's a set of beliefs and doctrines. It's not what works. What we need to do in counterterrorism look is look at what works. Another thing, I'd like to go back to the other question, mm -hmm. and this is why the idea of uh, banning Muslims uh, is just absurd, and this is the major idea. I have worked with Muslims in many parts of the world. The first thing they say to me is, John, when you get back to the United States, please tell them we're not like that. I know you're not like that, but it's depicted a particular way. When the average American thinks of Islam, the average American has no idea what Islam is about. I've worked with Muslim police officers, military people, I've worked with Muslim governments, and they're the people who suffer most from the terrorist. ISIS kills, with, ISIS kills Arabs, ISIS kills mm -hmm. Muslims, they kill Arab Christians too, and other faiths, but their most co uh, common victim is, uh, is Muslims. So if, if, if Donald Trump and his supporters have misplaced blame for the rise of ISIS on Islam as such, what, where do you think the blame stands in your view? Uh, where the blame comes from is a group of aggrieved people with the ability to travel with access to technology that can become deadly. That's where the blame of terrorism is. Now, much of your work is, is focused on practical or tactical responses mm -hmm. to modern terrorism. As you said before, you haven't, you don't usually do work in theory, though you do work in the history and ideology of, of this question. So putting Trump aside just for a moment, do you think there's a real political debate to be had between Democrats and Republicans about how to respond to ISIS? Or is it a matter not necessarily of politics, but simply of, of tactics? No, uh, when, uh, I want to clarify something. Mm -hmm. To do counterterrorism, you have to do a whole lot of theory. I mean, okay. it's, yeah. there's a lot of political theory involved in it. What I don't do is go into the philosophy of terrorism, uh, things like defining terrorism. No, uh, there is a, there's a great body of literature dealing with the theories and explaining the whys, uh, and it's necessary to it's necessary to master that in order to come up with counter-terrorist policies. And counter-terrorist policies should be based on what works. If you look over there, I'm pointing in my office at a picture of uh, General David Petraeus. David Petraeus had just about destroyed ISIS before it was ISIS. Uh, and he did that by going to our former enemies um, in Iraq, people who had killed Americans and guaranteed them a place in the government, guaranteed them safety, guaranteed them a role and protection 
and they had ISIS on the ropes. We had killed uh, their their founder uh, again. It, was Al Qaeda in Iraq? Then it became the Islamic State. Then the Islamic State of, of Iraq. It, it all emerged until uh, under its current leader. But we killed its first leader, second leader, third leader. Um, they were on the ropes. Then the Shiite government in Baghdad started moving and breaking the promises that Petraeus had made, and told the Democratic administration at this point, "Get your troops out." And we did. Uh, and in getting the troops out, we made the world safe for ISIS because everything fell apart. Shiite death squads were going into Sunni neighborhoods and killing people. They were riding roughshod over uh, the population. And ISIS came back and said, we'll protect you. And ISIS is not as much of a religious organization, I believe, as it is a secular Iraqi nationalist organization run by former Ba'athist military officers who see that they can use religion as, uh, as an international recruiting tool. There's the argument uh, that America's intervention in Iraq is what created the sort of power vacuum that made ISIS possible. Um, how would you respond to that argument? Because what you're saying is that, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that we should have you know, maintain some presence there and continued our negotiations and things like that, and that would have prevented the rise of ISIS as we see it today. I don't know if it would have prevented it, but it would have at least given us a chance uh, and it, to hold Maliki uh, responsible for keeping the promises that his government made. Uh, let's step back. Mm -hmm. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from Napoleon going into Egypt in the late 1700s. Europe discovers the Middle East. Uh, in the 1800s, the Middle East, the Islamic nations uh, in Africa, the Middle East, and uh, Asia were colonized by Europeans. When the Europeans ended up leaving after the age of imperialism was over, uh, they left artificial countries drawn by Europeans on European maps, people who had no idea what nation state even meant. The only way some of these countries are going to be held together is with a strong dictator with muscle who can force people to stay in an artificial union. Now we go into Iraq in 2003 and break the stranglehold. That's, I'm not defending Saddam mm -hmm. Hussein, he was a bad actor. but. We broke that stranglehold, and now all of these people who have no national, no natural, no clan ties, no affinities, they're breaking off into, they've, they've shattered into groups of people that really don't like each other very much. And look at Syria. Um, that we have groups that are, are fighting for ethnic reasons, for national, their own little tribal uh, idea of nationalism. Um, they're, they're mad because they've been repressed. Uh, and Russian bombers now are taking off out of Iran. <laughs> think, think about that. Mm -hmm. um, the Iranians would refer to the Russians as the great Satan as, as well as they would for us because they were secular communists and now Russian bombers are, are killing uh, Iran's enemies and uh, as Iran supports. Uh, Bashar al-Assad. 
So uh, getting back to your three characteristics mm -hmm. that are required to, under, to, to be a terrorist organization, one is to be an aggrieved group. Do you see the aggrievement of ISIS or Al-Qaeda as being related to, you know, as, as you said, the en entry of Napoleon into the Middle East and mm -hmm. everything? Okay. So then that raises... This is where you know our debate as a nation gets gets fraught and very tricky to navigate because you also then seem to have to deal with you know what some people in the Middle East might see as if if a terrorist is a terrorist or as the you know the cliche goes or a freedom fighter. How do you, as a person who's working against terrorism, deal with that question? Do you separate the aggrievement from the horrific act? undertaken by the aggrieved? Terrorist attack and target innocent right. civilian people to get out a political message or change behavior. Freedom fighters go after legitimate mm -hmm. military targets and they they are trying to topple a government and institute a new regime. It, it's, it depends on the type of terrorism that we're facing. One of the things that I developed, I was consulting with the Air Force back in the 1980s and uh, an Air Force captain who happened to be in the uh, security police came to me and said, you know, I just need something that the guys, can, that troops can understand. Um, I, I don't know what it is, and I don't really care. I just, I want to know what to do uh, when we're faced with a dilemma. And I started working on a thing, I think it was 1986 or something, way back, the dinosaurs had died, the ice had cleared. Uh, but anyway, uh, I took the Army spectrum of conflict. After Vietnam, uh, a group of officers sat down and said, wait, wait a minute. Everywhere we went, we fought. Everywhere we fought, we won. And we lost the war. Mm -hmm. Karl von Clausewitz said that, too, when the Prussian Army crossed under the Duke of Brunswick, uh, crossed into France uh, during the Revolution. They won, and yet... Uh, the French won the war. How did that happen? Well, the army decided you got to bring the right weapons to the right fight. Um, they were, the army concluded at the end of Vietnam, three different types of conflicts. And we were essentially trying to fight a conventional conflict or fight with conventional rules for a very low intensity, conf uh, low intensity war. And to fight that low-intensity war, you had to have a whole new set of tools. It's a different way of fighting. Well, I thought about that concept, uh, met with one of the Army's um, top counterterrorism pe people and was talking to him, and worked out a thing that I called the tactical typology of terrorism. Essentially, what I did was work from... Uh, what I would call the state of nature, and it's an enlightenment term, uh, just where there are no rules, there's no civilization, the civil state, and then through the civil state. And the basic premise, and I'm using Kant's metaphysical elements of justice, to, now I said I don't do philosophy, uh, but uh, Kant made a distinction between necessary force and violence. Uh, if you have a civil state, Kant said, you can force people to join the civil state. Why can you force them to join the civil state? Because if they stay outside the civil state, the rules of the civil state don't exist. They don't work. So, if you get down to it, this is not a uh, 
a happy thought, but the basic idea of a civilized state, a state designed to protect rights, is force. It's never a question, are you going to use force? It's how much force do you use? With that premise, there are all types of situations. My metaphor that I use in classes, we're always at war. Now, it's not that depressing. We're always <laughs> using force, but we're always using some type of force. And if you accept conflict as normal, well, you think, okay, the moral job of an agent of the state is to produce the least amount of conflict to resolve the situation. Everybody, let's get along, because I don't want to come back to this address. Uh, and, and that's the nice way to do it. But there are different problems. There are civil issues. Uh, there are misdemeanors. There are violent misdemeanors, there are nonviolent felonies, there are violent felonies, rioting, civil disorder, terrorism, guerrilla war, all these things before you get to the, well, guerrilla war would be the Army's version of low-intensity conflict, but you have to have a whole set of tools in your arsenal to go to each one of those different types of conflicts to resolve it. Um, and Kant said, if you do, it, and using force to stop that is necessary. And Kant said, that's not violence. Violence is when you use um, too much force uh, for a situation. For example, shooting an unarmed man running away from you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, police have that power, but that, uh, without a doubt, is too much force. Now, we can throw in all kinds of circumstances. Well, but what if, what if, what if? It always change with, changes with the what if. Uh, to fight terrorism, you need to know, first of all, back to the typology, what type of terrorism? Is it an individual? Uh, that involves investigative skills. Is it a serial killer? Uh, not a political terrorist, but certainly used, you know, holding a community at bay. Is it a street gang? Is it uh, narco-terrorism? Uh, drug gangs who are either running a terrorist state or using terrorist tactics to traffic uh, their stuff. Is it a small group without foreign support? A large group with foreign support? All of those demand a specific type of response. And you, you move along a scale uh, of more team-oriented or more military-oriented to just uh, investigative on one end. So when approaching terrorism, it's not a one-size-fits-all response. So based on your, again, based on your typology, could a state uh, commit an act of terror? Because yes. as you say, okay, so. Yeah. Hmm. They could support a group. Uh, Spetsnaz, mm -hmm. the old Russian special forces, uh, specialized in it. We have people who can specialize in it. I mean, it just depends on, you know, which side you're on, whether you're going to go out terrorism or not. So is is that and that's that what you just said gets back to this this difficulty of defining terrorism and also the difficulty of getting into the complex moral questions that must be asked about terrorism, which is is it purely in the eye of the beholder, for is it I mean is it purely based on you know which you know political group you're representing or which group you identify with? If you're killing large amounts of or if you're killing innocent people, for uh, a political purpose or to change behavior. Um, that's terrorism. If you're targeting someone and uh, targeting uh, 
a political enemy and you're going after the security forces, that's a different matter. I don't think that's terrorism, although you know, if, if you happen to be the bombee instead of the bomber, you might have a different view of that. I want to get back really quick to the question of how you think, again, putting Trump aside, although if, if he wins the election, then we, we, we couldn't do that, but based on the ways in which, in the past 10 years, Democrats and Republicans have talked about terrorism and proposed different responses to it, you know, how moving forward, if Clinton wins, say, how do you think our policy on terrorism and our reactions to terrorism will change? I think they are going to be much more pragmatic if she wins, uh, much more pragmatic than they have been under President Obama. I don't think they will be ideologically driven, or as ideologically driven. Um, How how have a but President Obama's policies been ideologically driven in your view? I think that we've looked at the, the we've acted as if some problems don't exist or um, that we, well, we've, we've made some bad foreign policy uh, mistakes in different parts of the world. Wh- which problems are you talking about? Uh, for example, leaving Iraq. We shouldn't have gone there. Mm-hmm. And I said that right until the invasion as publicly as possible, but having been in ROTC uh, during the Vietnam War, um, I, there was no way I was going to say anything after it started because I respect the military too much. Um, um, we just left, and we left a power vacuum. Our mission in Afghanistan has expanded to almost an absurdity. We went in to get jihadist. Uh, we got number one. We still don't have number two. President Obama, by the way, has gotten a heck of a lot more than President Bush did. Um, but we're in this idea of trying to create a country and a government where nobody's been able to create a country and a government. We, uh, we're fighting all over the globe right now. Most Americans don't know that. Uh, we have forces in Africa, we have forces in Latin America. Uh, the the world is a mess, and you simply just can't kill terrorists. Um, and it's going to take a, a very comprehensive foreign policy. Well, that's redundant. It's going to take a comprehensive foreign policy. Um, of all the candidates right now, um, from what I've seen from Secretary Clinton, she can do it. There are people in Trump's uh, camp who can do it too? Hmm. Uh, I don't know that he has the uh, sophistic, the political sophistication, to understand the situation. But there are a heck of a lot of Republicans who do. Supporters of Trump or people who are actually advising. Um, I think Republicans. Just okay. Yeah, I, and I don't know enough about domestic okay. politics to to weigh in on that. So I'll, I'll ask this question, and this, we may be going over some of these things again, but I just okay. want to get at it as directly as possible. We've been talking a lot about how to respond to ISIS, and of course our tactics would, as, as you say, be determined by our ideology. The argument of the right um, often is that you know the clash with ISIS is a sort of clash of civilizations, um, whereas plenty on the left would say, and I think some people on the right would say too, that the rise of ISIS is directly link with America's intervention in the region. You said that you agree a bit more, I think, with the latter reading of the situation, but how do you think our answer to that question will determine our tactics in the next 10 years? 
Well, let's take ISIS, for example. It can't be separated from the Syrian civil war. Now we have to make a fundamental policy decision. Do we want to get rid of Assad, or do we want to get rid of ISIS? It's not, well, let's do both. That's not going to work. Russia's building a coalition. We're not. Russia's been able to keep Assad in power. Uh, we haven't been able to topple him. Trump said, well, we need to sit down with the Russians. If we sit down with the Russians, well, I think he's right about that, but I think a lot of Democrats think he's right, that they agree. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, politicizing the argument. Um, that means we might have to end up with an Assad. Is he a, uh, is he a thug? Yes. But he is in an artificial country drawn after World War I. Um, okay, let's negotiate. What do you want? Where can you stay? Okay, let's do that. Rebel groups, what do you want? We just want to get rid of two groups and we'll let you have the rest. And you can run yourself like you want. You can do what you want, have the form of government you want. And it would be a heck of a lot cheaper for us to pay, pay for it than to spend what we're spending on counterterrorism. The only two conditions, we want Jabhat al-Nusra eliminated and we want ISIS eliminated. Well, the majority of them do too. Right. And by the way, al-Nusra or the al-Qaeda group and ISIS, they're killing each other too. So you work... And you have worked on, you continue to work on religious terrorism as a sort of concept, right? Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started your work on this this topic well before 9-11. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. In uh, fact, my first book, it's not actually a book, it's a little uh, monograph uh, uh, published by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, was called Holy War, Terrorism as Theological Construct. You've been working on this then before modern terrorism, as you define it, was really on the minds of most Americans. Mm -hmm. What, I guess first, what got you interested in the topic? Um, well, I had been, when I came to Grand Valley, the first thing I did, um, I was offered uh, another position at another university where I really wanted to go. And I'm really glad I didn't because Grand Valley took off. The other university is just a typical state university. This was the place to be, and I'm so glad to have to made that decision. But one of my conditions was I wanted to have a course on terrorism. I found criminal justice where I was hired to be a professor of criminal justice. I always found that kind of boring. Uh, but the terrorism uh, excited me. So I, I developed that and uh, focused a lot on Ireland and noticed that, okay, we have Protestants and Catholics and they're not practicing Protestantism and Catholicism, they're using the religion to justify extreme positions. Mm, that was interesting, then found out uh, from a prosecutor, well, actually found out from friends of mine at Central Missouri State University, which is now, I think, Central Missouri University, they dropped the I can't remember how they changed it, but anyway, I was at a conference, and my buddies came to me and said, why in the world are you looking at Ireland? Why don't you come to Missouri and look at the groups we have? And I did, uh, and found uh, an extremist right-wing, for the most part racist, militant group of displaced white people who were avid and angry and uh, violent. And I started studying them. And it was all ensconced in religion. 
something that you said about Ireland was interesting. Uh, you, you said that, or suggested that a lot of their grievances were probably political in nature, but they were using their religion as, as a means to sort of express that and, mm-hmm. then, and, and as a justification for it as well. Did you find the same in Missouri? Mm-hmm. So there were political grievances. Mm-hmm. What were they, would you say? Uh, anger of not being able to get ahead. Uh, anger of feeling economically displaced, hatred of the federal government, hatred of minorities, hatred of Jewish people, and they would read the Bible. And, uh, well, I found four different groups. Um, One is uh, just a, it's not really a religion, they just made up their own religion by using the term uh, creativity or the creativity movement. And it's the was called the World Church of the Creator. They've had to change their name because the Church of the Creator went after them, and that's a legitimate organization. But they believe that in a deistic God, a God that put everything in motion and then just basically said, "White man, you're on your own." They have their slogan is Rohawa, racial holy war. They have the white man's Bible, and they I mean they just wrote their own scripture. So we have that that movement, the, the deistic movement. We have another group of folks that I simply call, in fact, I got credit for coining the term, free-willing fundamentalism. They just, uh, they're, they go to the gun shows. Oh. And uh, one gun show, uh, you know, they've got a verse up from Luke that says, sell your cloak and buy a sword, you know, and attribute it to Jesus. And that's in there, but they don't read the rest of the verse. Uh, and uh, there is another movement, which is called Christian Identity, which basically says that God is white. God created white people in his image. The devil created Jews. The Jews created interbred with human-like creatures, and that created the mud races. That's anybody who's not white. And uh, they call for uh, an international revolution. And then there are, the government calls them Odinists. I don't like to use that term because Odinism is, uh, it's a Norse religion and some people practice it and very few people are racist or anything else. They're more nature, nature worshipers of nature. But um, I call it Nordic Christianity because the ones, majority I've found, put uh, the Christian, triune deity over the Nordic pantheon of gods. And the Nordic pantheon is pretty good because it's hard to get, you really have to twist it like Christian identity does, it's hard to get a warrior god out of Jesus. It's pretty easy when you have people who go to Valhalla when they die with a sword in their hand. Your life in eternity is uh, drinking beer all night, or the magic beer all night in Odin's uh, hall, and then going out and fighting until you're wounded, and the Valkyries come and bring you back, and they pour magic beer on your wounds, and then you drink beer all night and go back and do the same thing. Have you you been, do you continue to track these groups? Do they still exist? Yes, yes. In fact, I don't track them as much anymore because uh, I have focused the last part of my career on, on national security. So I'm teaching students how to do that. In fact, Gleese Whitney, the director of the Hallenstein Center, with Colonel Hallenstein, obviously, before he passed away, with his blessing and his input, we established a national security sequence in the Honors College. Uh, and liberal, the Department of Liberal Studies 
uh, allows me to take select student, students who want to opt for the major. They can construct their own national security major uh, thanks to Colonel Hallenstein's guidance. But what uh, Gleaves and I tried to do in the sequence and what I still try to do is give students the tools they, they need to assess these subnational groups and we also have uh, a large focus on uh, symmetrical threats. It reminds me that you, you said when you were talking about domestic terrorism and mm -hmm. giving briefings, were these some of the groups you were talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so why, again, do you think you weren't allowed to use domestic terrorism because terrorism is only foreign? And um, I, I don't know. Okay. I'd have to ask. I, I know they were... One group wanted to show its mil I mean, one administration wanted to show we're tough, we mean business, and so they militarized the problem. The other was trying to say, you know, no, we're not going to militarize the problem. Uh, and uh, both ideologically driven. I'm guessing since we've been talking about religious terrorism or groups, um, the, the concept of religious terrorism or groups who have political or economic grievances and then use religion as a way to sort of mm -hmm. um, militarize and radicalize. You know, that phrase has surely changed a lot and developed a lot in the imagine imagination of, of, of Americans um, since 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right now there's this debate about quote-unquote radical Islamic terror, you know, whether we should think of the actions of ISIS or Al-Qaeda as somehow related to the religion as such. How has the debate about that question, how has that changed in the past decade? What do you think most people don't understand about the topic? I think they don't understand how uh, religion, like Northern Ireland, is used as an excuse, when the, the troubles were at their height, uh, is used as an excuse. If I can be theological for just a moment, there is a creative concept some people call it God, some people call it, you know, well, we're just here. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to impose a particular theology, but when we get to the idea of creation, and I think our brain is, this is really a bad metaphor, but I think it's kind of hardwired for that because there's a lot of spirituality in human existence and the concept of the divine does not go away. It can be displaced or it can be called science, and that's, that's it. But at some point, there is mystery. What happens with religious terrorism? Instead of accepting mystery, instead of saying, hmm, it's time to be quiet, instead of realizing that we have absolutely nothing to say about God, or the concept of God, or mystery. It, there comes a point when all our adjectives fail and we just have to sit in silence. Religious terrorists cannot do that. They know when God gets up, they know where God lives, they know how tall God is, and they know what God thinks mm -hmm. because God has told them or they've told God, their concept of God. And that's how it's manipulated. They can't live with a the mystery, they know the answers. So we've been talking as well about domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess with respect to the the groups, the white supremacist groups, the sort of like domestic religious terrorists. They're the, it's the intersection of these two topics that you've been studying. Mm -hmm. You know, how has 
the past five years, um, or even the past year, with the with the um, changes uh, in the political landscape in America, have have those changes um, galvanized these groups? Are you seeing a rise of that sort of domestic terrorism or that sort of activity in America? Shortly after 9/11, the group I was working with, uh, consulting with the Department of Justice Counterterrorism Program, we held a focus group. We drew people. Uh, people who deal with domestic terrorism all over the country, brought them to a table and said, okay, what are you finding? Thinking we were going to find all of these violent immigrant, primarily uh, growing Muslim groups. That wasn't it. What was happening was the growth of right-wing anti-government groups. Those skyrocketed after President Obama took office. Without reviewing numbers, President, President George W. Bush received X amount of death threats a day. When President Obama came to office, the number spiked, and he received easily too many, or two times the number of threats. There is a large segment of America that feels left out, and they're flocking. Well, flocking, I'm giving them too much power. Right. These groups are growing. I want to keep it in perspective, too. We have many more problems than this. Many more problems with terrorism or just no, national? Many, yeah. many more problems with violent death than terrorism. Mm -hmm. But this is just one way of fighting, and mm -hmm. we're going to be fighting like this throughout the century. Do you, just to put those in, that, that idea in perspective, so you're just talking about violent crime in cities and things mm -hmm. like this? And oh, car okay. wrecks. Car wrecks, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there are a lot of issues. The, the, the terrorism grabs people because it takes what looks like a normal environment and all the rules are broken. And that's exactly what terrorists want to do. Guerrillas want to take and hold territory. They want to eventually create a conventional army. Terrorists can never do that. Terrorists can only project an aura. Like, okay, look, we're really strong. You're not really strong or you wouldn't be a terrorist, you'd be a guerrilla. But the truth is you're extremely weak. That's why as ISIS is weakened, the amount of terrorism will grow up. Will go up. President Obama has gotten a lot of flack for his description of ISIS as being the JV team. Um, I mean, to to what degree he? Call, I, I can't remember when he called them that, but that, it was over a year ago. I think it was before a lot of these recent attacks. How should we talk about terrorist organizations? Because a lot of a lot of the rhetoric right now is that they're much stronger than we expect, and so we should have a, a sort of gung-ho foreign policy that will really just, you know, exterminate these groups. You know, how should we talk about How should we put them in perspective? We, I don't think we can have a policy that's going to exterminate the groups. Mm -hmm. I do think that we can have foreign policies that build alliances and strengthen people who have a vested interest in reducing the amount of violence. We're never going to get rid of car accidents. We're not giving up cars. Therefore, we want to minimize the accidents. We're not going to get rid of terrorism. We need to minimize uh, terrorism. And to do that, we need allies. We need people who can operate what the late Arthur Sobrowski, Admiral Art Sobrowski says, he said this is a special warfare conference at the Pentagon in uh, 2005, and it just uh, before he died, boy, did we lose an American. He said we need to learn how to operate deeply in society.
David Petraeus and John Amos, well, they get the credit for it, but the, the officers who put together the U.S. Army, U.S. Marine Corps Counterinsurgency counter Manual talks about a whole new way of fighting and fighting effectively many times involves not fighting. How do you think voters should educate themselves on these topics before they watch the presidential debates if they happen and before they cast their ballots? I'm not worried about voters educating themselves. Okay. It isn't going to happen. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> no, it's nobody, you know, oh, wow. you start talking about France in the 1790s going into Egypt and glaze comes over. My, my golf buddies, I love them to pieces. I had a chance after the International Big History Association Conference to go see the uh, Particle Collider in Switzerland. I decided to come back to the States uh, because my wife couldn't make the trip. But I was talking to my golf buddies. And they thought that was hilarious. One looked at me and said, I always wanted to see particles collide. I would have stayed. And I thought, you know, Pearls before swine. I mean, they're great guys. <laughs> oh, no. That's a can't. Thank you. That's, yeah. a, that's a can't answer. Good. Okay. So despair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then let's. You know, we. I've, I've had you here for about forty-five minutes, but I just want to. Well, I just want to ask a bit, uh, just a little bit about your career. So, sure. you know, what have been? You, you've talked about your work in domestic terrorism. Have there been certain formative experiences or realizations that you've had about the nature of modern terror? Um, um, was it from study or from working in countries uh, where, where terror was an everyday threat? Working in countries. Uh, two things just immediately come to mind. One in Istanbul at police headquarters going into the counterterrorism thing. It was like literally walking through the fortress, the barbed wire, the machine guns, and realizing, gee, this is real. Uh, hitting the ground in Pakistan. And as soon as I got there, I thought, well, the time for theory has passed. Wow. Uh, th this is real. Uh, going through roadblocks in Pakistan and uh, up close to Peshawar by the Khyber Pass uh, and not stopping when people with machine guns are waving you down. It's nope. <laughs> you can shoot up the car, but I'm not stopping. Yeah, those are formative experiences. And it makes you realize, gee, this stuff is real. It's not just something that you talk about in the classroom. Well, you're at you're at Grand Valley. Fewer Roblox here, but <laughs> but, but um, you know how do you as this as the question of terrorism seems to become more important in our political conversation? How do you see your career developing? Are you going to continue to work on these topics? Are you going to continue to, to advise? Yeah, if we have a national emergency, well, when when we do, I will. Uh, I st I am somewhat inactive uh, now on the uh, counterterrorism team, but I I keep my credentials in order in case they need to call me back. We had a particular project with the White House two years ago, a year ago, and I went back for four months and worked in Washington just because it was a major issue. But I. I've reached an age where I'm trying to slow down a little bit. In fact, I, I should retire from Grand Ballet, but I love the students so much. I mean, it's, this is this is a work. I feel like Mark Knopfler in Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. Uh, <laughs> it's the greatest job in the world. And 
I have students, and I imagine some students will listen to the podcast because they'll be assigned to. Oh, God, we've got to listen to Dr. John. Uh, but a lot of students always ask me, hey, how do I get into this? I want to I do this. What do I do? First question I ask is, what's your GPA? Well, it's 2.5. Well, you're not getting into it. Uh, the, the first it's pretty thing, selective. Yeah, yeah. The first thing okay. you do is study like crazy. And study a vast array of, of disciplines, especially poli-sci history. Uh, learn how to write. Learn foreign languages. I started the School of Criminal Justice at Grand Valley State University. I've had five criminal justice classes. Uh, some of my books have been best-selling books on college campuses. Uh, my textbook right now, I think my publisher tells me, is either the best-selling or one of the best-selling books on college campuses. I've never had a course in counterterrorism. You've got to learn to think. I studied religion and history. I got a master's degree in military history. I was working in an undercover unit at the Jackson Police Department when two guys from Michigan State came down and they were doing a study. And I asked one guy, because he was a PhD candidate, what, what are you getting your doctorate in? He said, criminal justice. I said, oh, no, no, I mean the academic discipline. What are you getting? And he said, criminal justice. And I said, no, no, are you studying poli-sci? You're studying history? What are you studying? Criminal justice. And I started laughing. I said, they give degrees in that? Uh, he recruited me to the PhD program right. <laughs> in criminal <laughs> justice. Uh, but I found the real effective way, and even with that, I, t I took uh, as many hours in sociology and as many hours in poli-sci and as many hours, almost as many hours in statistics as I did CJ. Because to understand the complexity of criminal justice, you have to understand a variety of disciplines. And that, that led me to, hey, this is, this is a way, I, was on, I had been on a SWAT team, and uh, I, I knew something of terrorism. And that just opens the door, but it's interdisciplinary, it is multifaceted, and you have to be curious about, about a bunch of different things. Dr. John, thanks for your work, and thanks for talking with me. Oh, you bet. This is a real pleasure. Thanks for the work you guys do at the Hallenstein Center. Good luck uh, in New York. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jonathan White talking about modern terrorism, religious extremism, and American foreign policy. For more by Dr. White, check out his book, Terrorism and Homeland Security, which is currently in its eighth edition. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and records many episodes, including the one you just heard, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.